It was in my kitchen that I stood in front of the sink and dried hundreds of dishes, and my mother poured into me those Bible verses that carried me through the years. It was in that kitchen that my dad prayed for the nations and invested in me so much that I fell in love with the world. It was as we sat with my dad to talk about getting married um, that my dad didn't ask Nick one question. He asked me the question, Ruth, what about your desire to go to the nations? Because as a nine-year-old, I had said to God, I want to go to the nations. And as a 12-year-old, I told God, can it be Africa? And my dad knew if I didn't do what I had told God I wanted to do as a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, I would be a miserable person today. It was my dad who prayed for me, and you know, it would have been probably his deepest desire to just keep me right there in his hands all my life. But my dad opened his hand, and as he prayed for me, he launched me to the world. And that's where I am today, because I had parents who blessed me to do what God asked me to do. The trouble is, we have a whole generation of young people in America that are being held in hands, and the hands haven't been opened to bless them to do what God's asked them to do. This weekend, one of my challenges to you is, who are you blessing mm. to go across the street in your neighborhood and around the world? Who are you challenging to do what God's asked them to do and then take them under your wing and stand in the kitchen and dry some dishes and pour God's word into their hearts? Last weekend, Nick and I were at a conference in Kentucky, and there was a woman and her husband that came up to talk to me, and they had two of their four children with them, teenagers. And the lady began to tell their story. This husband's father in an Eastern European country had been put in prison because he was a follower of Jesus. And in that prison, the prison, had, prison guards had told him that his family had deserted them, him and they were in a cell down the hall and they were being tortured. And he was told that no one in the world knows you're alive. Mm. No one cares. A few years later, this young boy who was the son, who was who the guards had told the father that he was, um, had denied Christ, met a young woman in China, and they got married. And when they went back to his home country and talked to the father, the father said, when they were beating me and torturing me in that cell, I was praying for you. I was praying for the woman who would marry my son, because I was confident my son had not denied Christ. Tonight, I want to tell you, as you are blessing those people that God has placed in your hands, there are believers around the world who are praying for you. And my question to you is, how much are you praying for them? 
because I promise you one day it will be our turn and we will be dealing with persecution. And are we praying for them as much as we want them to pray for us when it's our turn? We are the body of Christ and tonight we are free to come here and worship. But tonight, by you being here worshiping, you're helping believers be free and worship. The beauty of the body of Christ is that what you do matters to them. And as your finger and your knee and your head and your heart, all parts of your body are dealing with victory tonight because we're sitting here, we can be victorious. But we also need to remember we're being persecuted because there's no such thing as a free church and a persecuted church. There's just the church. And we're always free and we're always persecuted for we are the body of Christ. And I'm supposed to follow that. Hmm. People say, you're gonna take your wife and kids with you in Africa? Well, I don't leave her by herself in America. You know, one of the things that I love the most about Ruth is, um, is when I met her in college is I knew that this lady was going to chase after Jesus around the world no matter whether anybody went with her or not. And it, it has been a fantastic uh, uh, 34 years. Now, uh, you're going to see a slide here in a moment, I hope, right? And... On it, it's going to be one of the largest lakes in Africa. It happens to be in the northern part of Ethiopia. And on the side that you're going to, going to see it, 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 you can walk into it, you can fish, you can throw your nets. Uh, uh, they'll walk around it and go to the way upper side where there's just these old uh, primitive forests that's been there for thousands and thousands of years. And the water gets... Uh, I don't know, 35, 50 foot deep, and it's so cold coming out of the mountains. There's no fish up there, and there's small villages up there that haven't uh, ever heard clearly who Jesus is. And up at the upper side of that lake, uh, Ruth and I met a young man just a couple weeks after he came to Christ. And there was a, two or three miracles in his story. One is that he was literate, and God has miraculously put a 66-book Bible, your Bible, in his hands in, 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 in Amharic, whereas in the Orthodox Church, uh, his Bible in Gies is 83 books. It's a whole lot of different Bible there. And he got to listen, and this came, if you're part of a church like this, uh, we spent two or three hundred thousand dollars getting the stories of the Bible on every radio station that we could find in the country. And he got to listening to those radio stories and the stories of the Bible. He fell in love with the prophets. He fell in love with the stories. When he began to hear the stories of the New Testament, he fell in love with Jesus. And about that time, he found that Bible and he read it. And as much, as much as anybody can by themselves, as he read those stories and heard those stories, he found forgiveness for his sins, and he gave his heart to Jesus. But he doesn't know that there's another person on earth like him. Doesn't know that. As far as he knows, 
He's the only believer on earth. And he reads about the baptism of Jesus. He reads, reads about the baptism of, of John. And then he gets in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And he reads the baptism that is in and around Pentecost. And he realizes that is something that he needs in his life. And can you imagine him way up there in the northern part? And he's standing off a cliff that's about 30, 35 feet down into a deep, cold water. He's got this big forest behind him. And he's walking back and forth just pacing in, you know, agitation. Uh, I've got to be obedient. And he's just saying to himself, I've got to be obedient. I've got to be baptized. How in the world can I be baptized? I've got to be obedient. And he just does that. Uh, you know, he, he's making a, a path back and forth on this drop-off. And finally he looks at the water and he, he looks at the forest and he looks at the water and he looks at the forest and he starts backing up all the way to the edge of the forest and he starts running and he runs faster and faster and faster and he jumps off that cliff. And as he's falling in the air, he remembers what he hears on the, he's heard on the radio and he cries out, I baptize myself in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he hits the water. We found him two weeks later. He said, Dr. Nick, was my baptism okay? I said, son, it's deep. <laughs> you know, this, this is the deepest baptism I've, I've here, ever heard about. Folks, that's what I'm going to do to you tonight. If you're not a believer, you're in trouble. Because we're going to go deep. And it, it's going to sound like to you that I'm speaking a, a, a foreign language. Now, tomorrow, we're going to have a lot of fun. Because tomorrow sometime, starting what time tomorrow? What time? 10 o'clock. That's uh, Eastern Standard Time, right? We're, we're, we're going to, we're, I'm going to make some things up so that I can describe to you what it's like leaving the New Testament and landing in the Old Testament. And so we can describe to you what you better not take with you and what you better not leave behind. And, but tonight, I, I, I'm not going to describe anything to you. I'm going to prescribe. And that's not as comfortable. I, I'm not going to leave myself any, any wiggle room. Uh, I'm going to prescribe in such a way tonight what I want you to see in my personality, what I want you to hear coming out of the depths of my soul is thus saith the Lord. You got to make some changes. And you got to start doing some things you haven't been doing. You're going to have to stop doing some things that you've been doing. And it's going to be harder than you think because it's not your activities as as much as how is God writing his word, his ways, his will on your heart, okay? Now, you're looking at a guy that has not only butchered the English language, I've butchered four or five African languages, all right? You're looking at a guy that actually went and his wife said to him after we built a house in a village and we're the only people of this flavor for hours around, and she said, you go down to the one general store, a little store, you go in, there's no shoplifting because you walk up to a big old counter, you tell people what you want, they go get it, bring it to you. 
Then you tell them what you want, they go get it and bring it to you. So you're standing there, and a young, beautiful, young African village lady looks at me, and she said, Dadisa, can I, can I help you? And, and I told her, yes. I said, I, 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 she, my wife has said, you go buy some sugar, and, and I'll bake a cake, a chocolate cake for all of you, because it had been some hard weeks. And so I said to her, Dadisa, Iswele Kili, and she screamed, and she said, why, Kutani, why do you want that? I said, my wife wants to cook it. She wants to cook with it. And she screamed and ran away. I went to two more ladies like that came up. We had the same experience with them looking at me with eyes of sheer terror as they screamed and ran away. And finally, from way upstairs where he had his office, a distinguished black man walked down just with immaculate British English. And he, and he says, uh, 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 back then we were in places where we could openly be missionaries. And he said, uh, 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 welcome to my store. Thank you for uh, shopping here. Um, we're, we're glad that you've just moved here. Uh, uh, tell me what you, you want to buy and, and tell me it in English. And I said, oh, I've been trying to convince these ladies is to share, sell me a bag of sugar so I can go home and my wife can cook with it and, and, uh, and make a cake. And he said, well, sir, what you have been saying is that you have asked them, you say, I beg you for Iswele Kili. When what you wanted to say was Iswekili. You see the difference? No. It's just a little, it's no difference, hardly, just a little bit. The difference is one of, one of those words means bag of sugar. The other one means I want to buy a dead body <laughs> so I can take it home and my wife can cook it. And he says, well, we've never had people your color and your race live here and we wonder what you're doing in that brick house and we're wondering what you do behind those curtains and and we're we're wondering what what you talk about what you watch and and what you eat and the first time you show up in the store you want a dead body let me help you son now folks I, i've got to be uh, clearer than that to you in your own language and so what I, I, I am a lot of time, uh, Ruth and I describe to you what God is doing uh, among the peoples of the earth, what this spiritual warfare looks like, and we might even describe to you what is going on in the world, and we might not agree with it, but it's just what is going on. But tonight, I am not going to be descriptive. I'm going to be prescriptive and say to you, if the, if the leaders that we trust the most with our lives, that we trust the most in the kingdom of God, leaders who have spent a, a, a great portion of their life being beaten, being imprisoned, be, being uh, 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 losing their jobs, having their children taken from them, all, all the things you've ever heard or imagined that could happen to Christians is happening to them. And if they were standing here tonight, there are three non-negotiable things they want you to understand, not about suffering, not about persecution, but about the kingdom of God. And they want you to understand these spiritual truths. And it is going to change how you do your work. Again, if you're not a believer, just take a nap or something. Just relax. This, this is not for you, perhaps. But if you are a believer, 
there, there's some things that you're going to have to change and adjust. Because what, what we do, if I was to have time to walk among you and, and just say to you uh, the word, and let's do word association, and, and I say to you persecution, just think, what would you say back? If I said the word suffering for Christ, what would you say back? If, if, if I talked about being a, a martyr for Christ, what would you say back? And all over this country, all over the Western world, if I say persecution, they, they say torture. They say bad. They say stop it. They, they say uh, separation. They say death. And, and we so associate with the word persecution all kinds of negative things. And when we find ourselves in our own culture facing difficult times and we think it has to do with our faith in Christ, it has to do with the freedom or the lack of freedom we think is growing in our country for the church. When we think of the word persecution, we think of something bad. We think of something that must stop something we must legislate against, something we should avoid, something we should eliminate. And yet when you go in among believers in the persecution, the first thing I want to say to you that they tell us is non-negotiable is that now when you hear these words come out of my mouth, you know I don't have any wriggle, wiggle room. Believers in persecution say in the Bible, number one, Persecution is normal. Now, I wonder how many times you've heard that. I wonder how many of you believe that. Well, you see, what is very natural and the most universal prayers that we offer up when suffering comes upon us are we pray over those who are persecuted in other lands for their their, their faith, what we generally pray, Lord, uh, stop that persecution, and Lord, punish those persecutors. We don't see persecution as normal. We don't, we don't, we, we believe that there is that which is inside of us, and you're cheating. You can't cheat. You, you, you're, you're cheating if you think that God owes you a resurrection without a, the precedent of a crucifixion. You want to believe. Oh, I would love to believe that crucifixion was a one-off. Now, again, the, the crucifixion of Christ was exceptional. It was unique. No one else dies for the sins of the world. No one else loves like Jesus loves. But when you look at faith, Practice. You look at those practicing their faith around the world, 70% of the believers in Christ that are practicing their faith today. In other parts of the world, in China, Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, those are not necessarily places, oh, those are places of terrible persecution. You know why? Because there's very few people telling very few people about who Jesus is. And we're going to revisit that in a moment. And these folks are already getting up. And 70% and of all believers who practice their faith live in environments of persecution. Now, as I said this morning, 48% of all statistics are made up. I just made that up. Just, just to give you an, an example. 
But normal Christianity loses their job. Normal Christianity has their children taken from them, usually by their parents and their grandparents, who still adhere to Islam. Normal Christianity in China, the first time I arrived there, Chinese leadership looked at me, and they asked me the most startling question. They said, Nick, has Jesus made it to other countries, or has he only made it to China so far? Now, that's pretty strong isolation, I would say. And as we talked on, they said, Nick, out of the 170 leaders that have gathered here uh, uh, to meet you, to talk with you, about 150 more than I thought was safe to be there, they said already 40% of everybody you're, you're looking at has already been in prison for three years. Men, women, pastors, lay leaders, deacons, elders, evangelists, church planners. They said, Nick, prison in China is our theological seminary. And they asked me, and you know, they have that smile on their face that in any culture, you know they're getting ready to mess with you a little bit. They said, now, Nick, now that you're in China for a few weeks, uh, how many seminary degrees would you like to get? I said, I'm good, I'm good. Mama needs me. <laughs> Mama needs me back home. I, I, I wish I had time to get some more de seminary degrees in China, but I, I don't really have three years to give you guys, all right? You, you know what? Uh, uh, they don't trust you as a leader in China in those days until you've been to jail. Most of the movements of God that major in the millions started because your brothers and sisters were arrested and put in prison with literally a captive audience and for the first time in their lives they got to hear the gospel story for days, weeks, months, and years at a time and when they were released from prison that persecution or whatever crime put them in there, uh, scattered Christians all over the world. There's something, though, I've got to make sure you understand because I certainly didn't do it. You see, you're from a country, especially if you're Caucasian. If you're from this country, you believe mostly that people who are in prison, people who are in jail, are people who deserve to be in jail. Ruth and I have lived most of the last 34 years um, under dictators, under presidents for life, under uh, uh, military regimes. And you are as likely to be in jail for being good as you are for being bad. And you know what happens? You go visit your pastor in jail. You go visit your deacon in jail. Mama, remind me telling the story about the deacon, all right, because I'll forget. I keep my brain outside of my body, so I just checked in with it, all right? All right, and, yeah, and you guys, don't you laugh because I know you, huh, you're no different, okay? What was I saying? Oh, if you're a pastor, you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're an evangelist, you're a church planner in jail, you go visit them in jail. Like Jesus said, 
he, he, he talked about in the book of Luke about going to the prison and, and, and visiting the captives and setting the captives free. He wasn't talking about physical release. He was talking about spiritual comfort. He was talking about spiritual changing them. But if you go and visit those leaders that they put in jail trying to silence the church and, and destroy the body of Christ, they'll ask you at the prison gate or wherever you check in to that jail you know you know your friend is in here because of that Jesus don't you yes that's what I know well are you one of those people that follow that Jesus just like this man or this woman does and you know that's when you have to make a choice because if you say yes I'm just like that person they will take you escort you and put you in the cell with your brother or your sister Gives a whole new meaning to prison ministry, doesn't it? You all believe prison ministry is something you do, and you come home from it. What if it's not? I've been to deacon meetings. You all have deacons or elders? Yeah, both. Okay, you'll have to explain that to me. I'm a little simple. but so, so both in China and in the former Soviet Union, I got to set in on a deacons meeting, an elders meeting. You might think, well, what's exciting about that? They were, they were choosing sides. It was so bad during those two visits that I made to the former Soviet Union in China, the elders, the deacons were arguing about that when they were arrested, who they wanted to go to jail with, what other deacon they wanted to go to jail with. And there was in, in, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, and in China, there, in both places, there were, was an elder and a deacon. Both of them were so furious because nobody wanted to go to jail with them. Well, maybe they need to brush their teeth or floss or use deodorant. I don't know what was wrong with them. Maybe they had a personality problem. Can you imagine putting it on the agenda about who, who we're going to go to jail with? In the Bible... In the Bible, I'm not saying in China, it's not my text, in Russia, it's not my text, among Islam, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, among communists, uh, uh, that's not where I'm getting my information, uh, I'm not saying that persecution is normal in any parts of the world, I made an outlandish statement and said, from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, persecution is normal. One of the biggest ways that we know, one of the biggest ways that we know where there is a great harvest, listen to your Uncle Nick, where there is a great harvest, uh, that's what God does. There is a great suffering, a great persecution, because that's what Satan does to try to get his territory back. Where there is, listen to me, where there is a small harvest, where bold witnessing is at a premium. In other words, there's not much of it going on. Where there's little harvest, little witness, there is little persecution. The question we must ask about those 70% of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their faith is not why are they suffering why are they being persecuted? The question I must ask myself in Tennessee, in Kentucky, in Virginia, as, I, as we travel around the states, why am I not? 
Now, it's not that you're going to try to get somebody to persecute you so you can feel good about yourself. Let me know. I need to let you know that I have found that in a, in a couple places around the world where the local body of Christ proves who the real Christian is by who is persecuted. And you know how to drive them crazy? Stop persecuting them. They'll drive them nuts. They'll go out and become some of the most obnoxious Christians you've ever met with local policemen and security guys and government officials because their theology is so strong that if you are in Christ, you will suffer and you will go to jail and you will be persecuted, that when God gives them a season of life in which that is minimized, they can't stand it. They can't stand it. Well, they, they need to rejoice whatever season of life God brings to them. I went uh, uh, to the Soviet Union. I'm meeting with a group of pastors. Pastors are gentle, mostly, right? They're kind. When David the shepherd is watching over his father's flocks and the wolves come after them, what does David the shepherd do? He kills them. He kills the wolf. He kills the lion. He takes out the bear. And yet Jesus says, I am sending you as sheep among the wolves, and this is not to be your practice. You are not to go among the wolves, and when you are so physically overwhelmed, because I'm a country boy, I've never known of a single sheep that want to fight with a wolf physically. Your job is not to become a super sheep on steroids so that you can take on the wolves. You are not necessarily to pass laws to keep the wolves at a distance. It is not your job to, to change culture, and, and especially what you are not to do is to fight fire with fire, and it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we give as good as we got, and we become, over a period of time, inseparable from the wolves. And they can't see any difference in the sheep of Jesus and the wolves of the evil one. So I'm sitting with these pastors, gentle guys. They're telling me stories. It's just like I'm sitting and listening from, from Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm, I'm sitting and listening to, it's just like I'm talking to Paul and Silas coming out of that uh, jail in Philippi where they were, were involved in an earthquake in the midnight hours and how they led that Philippian jailer and his family and baptized them inside of that prison. These are the types of people that Ruth and I have set at their feet now for almost 15 to 18 years. And, and my, our lives are, are, are forever changed, and, and I got in their face. I, I was, it was inappropriate, and I said to them, why haven't you written this stuff down? Why haven't you made books? Why haven't you written books and magazine articles? Why haven't you made movies? Your lives is, 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 is wilder than anything that Hollywood has ever done. And they waited for a break. They waited to where they took some time off to have a cup of tea and coffee. And one of the kindest, wisest, oldest pastors in the bunch took me by the arm, took me to the eastern side of the house, and gently asked me, said to me, I hear, Nick, that you have three sons. I said, that's right. He asked me, how many times do you get up 
of a morning, take the boys to the eastern side of the house and say, look, boys, the sun's coming up in the east. I said, I've, I've never done that. He said, why, why, why not? I said, well, the sun always comes up in the east. People would think I'm crazy uh, to do that with my boys. And he said, uh, uh, Nick, that's why we don't write books. That's why we don't make movies. Uh, uh, our suffering had happened to our great-grandparents, and it happened to our grandparents, and it happened to our parents, and now we're experiencing it and preparing our children for us. Uh, Nick, uh, persecution in our place, in our countries, among our peoples, is like the sun coming up in the east. Why would we make movies about it? But I am a slow learner. I go to the Ukraine. Now I'm in trouble. You know why I'm in trouble? I'm no longer with pastors. I'm with evangelists. Have you all ever been with evangelists? They'll charge hell with a bucket of water, and they don't need much water in the bucket. Evangelists scare me. Now, I work for the International Mission Board. Most people think with this mouth and this projection that I'm a, I'm a really great evangelist. Not like these guys. We're, we're in a taxi in North Africa. We're in a taxi that holds 18 people. It's him, the evangelist, and me, the sheep. And, and we've got 16 of the meanest Muslims you would think you'd ever meet. Got the beards, shaved mustache, got the kafir on their head. They've got the wraparound, oh no, they got the high water pants on. They've got the long shirt and they're, 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 they're counting, naming the 99 names of Allah on their prayer beads. And they're looking at you like you're a snack, you know, like you're lunch and and, and you're just thinking, oh, I can't wait to get off this taxi. And you drive by the garbage place. It's burning and it's smoking and it's stinking. And that crazy, inappropriate evangelist says to the 16 Muslims on that taxi bus, you know, I've driven by this pile of rubbish, by this garbage dump for four or five days now. And it's always burning, and it's always smoking, and it's always stinking. And he turns around, and he looks at him, and he says, you know what? If every one of you, if you don't give your lives to Jesus, that's where you're going to end up. You'll end up in hell burning just like that. Amen. I'm saying, good Lord. <laughs> Deliver me. <laughs> Not from the Muslims, huh? And so I get back in another taxi with him. Now, that's my fault. The first time was his fault. And, and we drive by, and he looks up in the sky, and he tells every Muslim on the bus, hey, you see that cloud? That cloud reminds me of the Holy Spirit. And in 30 minutes, he's telling them about forgiveness of sins and the judgment of God and how to get into heaven. And evangelists scare me to death. So I'm talking to evangelists. These, this is the Apostle Paul. This is John the Baptist. These are guys that are just so tough. They can say anything to anybody at any time. And the strange thing is they are so anointed, they get away with it. And, 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 uh, and, and they tell me their stories and I'm irate again. I didn't learn anything in Russia. Matter of fact, I even got a little bit less smart. Because I don't realize I'm with evangelists. And I say, why haven't you made movies of this? Why haven't you written this stuff down? You, we could market this in Hollywood in a moment. They did not wait for a break. They did not wait for the kind, gentle evangelists. There aren't any. 
They don't exist. That's a contradiction in terms. To take me quietly to the eastern side of the house and have a little quiet spiritual talk with me. Right there in front of everybody. The toughest, meanest, not meanest. Yes, he was mean. He got up and he came in front of everybody and he got right here and he said, Son, when did you stop reading your Bible? I said, I read it this morning. By the way, you've met Ruth. Every morning Ruth has a quiet time. Well, that's okay. But I have a loud time. All right? I think both of those are biblical. You guys laid a guilt trip on me for years. You kept asking me. I became a Christian 18, and you just came up to me in flocks of you and said, what are you learning? What, what did God tell to you in your quiet time? I haven't had a quiet time since the third grade. You know, uh, and, and I uh, thank God I got to read the Bible from Genesis to, to, to Revelation and found out that phrase does never exist. It's not there, so stop it. You know, make me feel guilty about something else. And, 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 and but... Having that time alone with God is, is non-negotiable. And evangelists are sort of like me, and this guy's having a loud time, and, and he's, he's this far from me. And he said, when did you start stop reading your Bible? And I said, I've read it this morning. He said, I don't believe it. He said, Nick, everything that has ever happened to us in the history of the Soviet Union, God has already written our stories down in the book. And if you want to know our story, read the book. And since you don't know our stories, how can we believe that you're reading the book? We have developed such a, a, a guys, guys, we have so taken the bark off of Christianity. You know what we would do? We would take John the Baptist, who's eaten locusts dipped in honey, wearing camel-haired suits and smelling like death himself, and we would dress him in a three-piece suit and comb his hair and give him some aftershave. That's not what Christianity is made like. It's made for tough men. It's made for men who have calluses on their hands and calluses on their feet and calluses on their heart. People who can take Jesus in places. And guess what? We don't give you Kevlar. We don't give you a weapon. And we can't overfly you. And we, we can't. And if you go down, we have no one to send in there to rescue you. And we're going to send you out under the power and the authority and, and the coverage of Almighty God and the Holy Spirit. And if you come home, praise God. If you don't come home, praise God. That's in God's job description. What we found from believers in persecution is in the Bible, number one, persecution is normal and I want you to know folks the persecution that Ruth and I are learning from measuring uh, uh, listening to is not persecution that's based on social issues please please don't hear any arrogance in my voice I'm one of seven children I'm the second born of six boys and then about the time I went off to college, uh, my sister, seventh child, was born. I'm the runt of the litter. I'm the one that wasn't supposed to live. I've had pneumonia, every childhood disease that you could dream of, and, uh, uh, and, and I left home. You know why? Because 
It's bad enough to get hand-me-downs from your older brother. It's bad to hand-me-ups. I hate, when you're getting hand-me-ups from your younger brothers, that's embarrassing. So when my sister came along, I got scared. <laughs> so I, I left, you know. I just couldn't see me dressed like that. But again, that's why I'm not so bright. But I'm smart enough to marry her. She married me. Who's the smartest? No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. In the Bible, persecution is normal. Secondly, Ruth and I, again, please don't hear any arrogance whatsoever. If anything, hear brokenness. Ruth and I know. We know without a shadow of doubt. That's why we can be prescriptive. We know the number one cause of persecution on this planet. Now, I don't know where your brain went, but you might think, well, it's Islam. Or it's governments. Because there's some really bad governments out there in North Korea. And uh, that's not a government. That's emperor worship. You know, it's, it's the per main persecutors of believers in China are, are the government, the policemen, the security, uh, the PSB, the Public Security Bureau. And when I, when I talk about, now, that's not what we're talking about. When I say we know the number one cause of persecution on the planet, we're not talking about who the carriers are. We're talking about where does it originate. What is the origin of persecution across the planet? Do you know the number one cause of persecution in this world? It's people giving their lives to Jesus. Wow. Now, how has the church been conditioned to pray for believers in persecution? We have been taught. We have been exhorted. We have been encouraged to pray for us to pray for persecution to what? To stop, to cease. And we have been taught, and it's been modeled for us to pray one half of the prayer of Jesus, and that is, Father, let this cup pass without praying the second half of that prayer in the garden. But Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Satan has two major interests in you. Two. You know, it's not, you, you don't want to major in Satan. You don't want to fill your mind and your heart with what the evil one does. That, that's really, really dangerous. But we've been in the darkest places on this planet. And in essence, I, I think it's safe to say we know the heart of Satan and he has two desires. Number one, he wants to stop people of this planet from having access to Jesus. Did you hear that? 2.8 billion people, 2.8 billion people have not a single missionary. 2.8 billion people have no Bible, not one verse in their language. 2.8 billion people have never seen the Jesus film. 2.8 billion people have not one church in all of their world. Now, they go on to say that 2.8 billion people have no known believers, but that's not true because everywhere Ruth and I have gone in the darkest places on this planet, there's always men and women that come to find us and tell us that they are followers of Almighty God and His name is Jesus Christ. God is not waiting for us to show up to do what God does. The reason why we go across the street 
to neighbors and to nations is to discover what God is doing. Join him there. And, and pastor, I'm going to risk something. And I usually, I don't want to make a mess that you have to clean up, okay? So if this causes a mess, I'll stay. And Ruth will clean it up. <laughs> so, I mean, why change now? It's worked for 41 years, all right? You know what, folks? I've never said this in front of an audience like yours. I've said this to uh, a small gathering of missionaries, but you all, um, this church and churches in this area are serious about getting on with what God has commanded you to do. Now, you all like to do something that also is not theologically correct. You like to talk about a call to missions. When Jesus says, go, that's not a call. That's a command. Think about it. Go. When my daddy said go, I didn't see that as a suggestion. And if I did, I probably lost a little bit of hide back then, okay? It wasn't such a tender, gentler world where I grew up. And Jesus said go. And then in Acts, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then go into the ends of the earth. And as Ruth and I have gone, now in 72 countries, we have sat at the feet of men and women, old and young, educated oral communicators, rural, urban. We've sat at their feet, and we have listened to their faith stories for literally thousands and thousands of hours. We have done that. Everywhere we have gone, where we have told that the people are unengaged and they're unreached, we've always found 5, 10, 15, 50 followers of Jesus. Now, the way that they are is they are scattered. We're going to talk about this in the morning when we do some subject, uh, subjective stuff. They're scattered. They're alone. They're afraid. They don't know that anybody else is a believer because they've come to Jesus in such miraculous manners, one by one by one. They don't know who to trust. They don't, they don't even go looking for anybody else. They think they're the only believers in their family, in their people group, in their city, maybe in their country. Everywhere we go, we find those who can articulate to us in the darkest corners of the planet who Jesus is and how they believe in us. Everywhere we go, God is not waiting to make himself known. That's what God is doing. But if we find this is not true somewhere, what I'm going to say to you next is not going to bother me. But I don't think we're going to find it. Because we've been too many places, talked to too many people, and had to relearn and relearn what we thought the kingdom of God is like, what we have never found. This is, Pastor, where I'm, I'm teetering a little bit. And so if I need to clean this up, I will, or Ruth will. We have never been to a single, everywhere we've gone, we have found men and women who have given their life to Jesus, though there is no Bible there, there is no uh, a missionary, there was no historical church, there's no Jesus film, and God, like that young man up on that mountainside, though he had some resources, God is doing what God has always done, like he did with Abraham, like he did with David, like he did with Ezekiel, like he did with Jeremiah, 
like he did with Miriam, like he did with Moses, and like he did with Esther. And the, and the list goes on and on. Why would you expect in the New Testament era of history that God would stop doing what he was already doing in the Old Testament world? Don't do that to yourself. But what we've never found God doing by himself. And it's not that God can't do it, but it looks like he's chosen not to do it. We've never, as of today, after 41 years of marriage, 34 years on the mission field, four languages, 84 countries where we at least been out of the airport, we've never gone to a single country, a single city, a single town, a single people group where God planted a church by himself. Am I saying that God can't do it? Oh, no, I would never say that. But at one half of me is terrified. And the other half of me is so elated and that God in his sovereignty has determined that the nature of the kingdom of God is so that he will call the bride of Christ in to existence when we are obedient to go and do what Jesus has commanded us to do. What if indeed God has put that on our shoulders? What a risk. What a partnership. What a responsibility. The number one call, secondly, of people of persecution, the number one cause is people coming to Jesus. Satan has two desires, and I've got to finish fairly quickly. One is to keep you from having access to the kingdom of God. And secondly, if he can't keep you from Jesus, he wants to shut you up, make you keep Jesus to yourself, make you what I hear to I'm nauseated about it. I hear in offices. I hear it in doctor's places. I hear it in everywhere I go that faith in America is a private matter and you don't take it in the marketplace. Nothing should be, nothing is more opposite than the kingdom of God than saying something like that. Faith, the marketplace, is the main place that Jesus called down the kingdom of God. What does Satan want? He wants to keep the peoples of the earth from having the biggest persecutor. The evil one himself wants to keep the peoples of this earth from having access to the kingdom of God. And secondly, if he doesn't achieve that goal, what he wants to do is make you timid, make you terrified, make you embarrassed, make you think it's about you, make you think that when Jesus is rejected, it's actually you that are being rejected. And, and Satan wants to shame you, terrify you, beat you, persecute you, make you tonight, tonight, tonight. If you want to keep Jesus to yourself, you can be a believer in Saudi Arabia and probably die in your sleep. If you, if you determine not to tell anybody about what Christ has done to you, you can live your whole Christian life in North Korea and never be at risk. If you keep it from your wife and your children or your husband and your family. This is what Satan wants. Now, because of time, you already know this. The number one way that oftentimes we think that we identify with our brothers and sisters in persecution is through the prayers that we offer up for them. That is the third 
connection. The first two are different. Your brothers and sisters are in chains. 30,000 approximately are arrested every day. Every day. Most of them are taken to a police station. They're hassled. They're embarrassed. They're smacked around. They're threatened. We're going to tell your wife. We're going to tell your husband. We're going to kick your kids out of school. We're going to call your boss. We're going to get you in trouble. Uh, uh, that's, that's what happens to many of those 30,000. But you know why they're arrested? You know why they're persecuted? Because of two things. They chose. See, it's the opposite of what Satan wants. They chose to follow Jesus. And secondly, they chose. They made a decision to share him with others. They will not be quiet. And therefore, they're in chains. So the, what happens is when I share Jesus with my family, when I share Jesus with my colleagues at work, when I share Christ across the street uh, to my neighbors as well as to the nations, when I follow Christ and I refuse to keep him to myself, but in love, in appropriate ways, with joy singing in my heart, with a hope of salvation for the person that I'm talking to, when I give my life to Christ and sharing with others, that's when we identify with our brothers and sisters in chains. But if you stay with Ruth and I for 30 to 100 years, I will not say anything that's harder than what I'm going to say to you next. When I keep Jesus to myself, when I use him as my free lunch ticket to heaven, when I think that I can pray a magic prayer and never do anything for the kingdom of God the rest of my life, and I just have to, to, to do that, and then God, when I die, has to let me in heaven, though I never spoke with him from that first experience to the experience of death. When I keep Jesus to myself, I, I don't share it with my friends, my families, my neighbors, my colleagues, and with folks around the world as Jesus allows and commands. Not only, listen to me, not only, this scares me, Am I not identifying with my brothers and sisters in chains? I'm identifying with the persecutors that chained them. Nick, what are you saying? I don't want to say it. I don't want to have to say it. I, I don't want it to be true. I don't want to look you in the heart and lay this on you. What are you saying, Nick? I'm saying this. If you call yourselves a follower of Jesus and regularly cease, don't share him with family, friends, acquaintances, you know, not being ugly about it, doing it appropriately, with, filled with truth and grace, if you keep Jesus to yourself, you're a persecutor. What could be worse than my silence directly causing my biological brother and sister, my mother, my father, the friends that God has given me, my colleagues, my teachers at schools and universities, when when I keep Jesus to myself, and if I had not 
kept him to myself, that they would have had full access to the kingdom of God. Perhaps they, their family, and generations after them would now be sitting where you're sitting tonight. I have persecuted that person. I've persecuted their family. I've persecuted their town. I've persecuted their city. I've persecuted their culture. When we look at statistics that show us that in mainline denominations in the West, 20% uh, of churches report no baptisms last year. 40% of churches report uh, less than two baptisms last year. I, I'm, I, when I say I'm scared, when I'm saying that I'm terrified, that's not really describing how I feel. But I, I do tremble to think that when I'm timid, when I'm having a bad day, when I'm in that taxi with guys that have the ability to do physical harm to me, and I keep Jesus to myself, where if I had opened my heart, my experience, and done what Jesus has commanded me to do, that the very least, the very least that you and I our charge is to give people a clear opportunity to say yes or to say no to Jesus. But when we give them no opportunity to say yes or no to Jesus, and that lack of courage, that lack of sharing uh, leads to them going to eternity without Christ, Fa Father, forgive me when I have had a hand in that equation. Now, folks, I wasn't raised a Christian. I don't, I don't have a guilt button. So, you know, when I'm sitting in church and, 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 and somebody's trying to lay a guilt trip on me, it doesn't stick. I, I don't have that button. So I'm not, I'm not pushing that button on you. I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty whether or not you're, you're being bold in your faith. What I'm trying is to give us a reality check. And to say to you a few things. One is, God is making himself known. I want to be a part of that. God has seemingly determined that the body of Christ is called into being when you and I partner with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, the way that we've been commanded and the way we've been made to do. That God has determined in his sovereignty that his bride is called into being when we walk in obedience and in witness with Jesus. And, and what I want you to hear is that, yes, I hear all the time in the states that, that I'm said by clergy and lay leaders alike, Nick, I believe that persecution is coming to America because of our stands on homosexuality and abortion. But one of the things that I want you to be aware of is that conservative Christianities, and we should have conservative, hear that clearly, conservative stands on, on social issues, conservative biblical stands, and what we need to put back in the equation that hasn't been in the equation is we've got to love people who have lifestyles different than ourselves. That's also a commandment by God. But when I keep Jesus to myself, 
I have become a persecutor of persons, families, and maybe even nations. And conservative Islam has the same social stance on abortion and homosexuality as does conservative Christianity. So is, are those two social issues, is that what you want to have to define us? I, I, I don't think so. Now, I'm in a lot of trouble because I've been looking at the wrong part of the clock. And I've been wondering, why is it staying on seven minutes? When now I realize it's on eight seconds. So I've got to say very quickly, the third thing that's non-negotiable is now you're going to sit with Nick and Ruth. You're going to learn from their mistakes. And Lord knows, everyone that can be made, we've probably made it somewhere down the line. And so you're not going to make those mistakes. You're going to go out as a team. Your church knows how to do it. You're going to send people by twos across the street. But that's when you go to your own people and you have your own language being spoken. But the further you go from Jerusalem, the more you have to go and have uh, people my age, our age on your team. You've got to have young people on your team, young couples, old couples on your team. Because one of the things, it's sometimes just this simple. People come to Christ when they meet somebody their age and their gender who is a Christian. 30-year-olds usually can't lead 60-year-olds to Christ. That's just the way the world operates. Generally, you will lead to Christ somebody that's three to five years younger than yourself. And so let's just say you're going to do everything right. You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea. You're going to Samaria. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. You're going to finance it. You're going to go. You're going to boldly give a witness. You're going to have the tools for your job. And you're going to do everything right. I cannot unpack it because I took too long. But everyone that died in Somalia the years we were there had a relationship with a foreigner that contributed directly to the timing of their death. We're not going to do that again. We've learned from that. Ruth and I are here because we have been knocked down and we've fallen down and we've made mistakes and we've got the scars to, to prove it and we are willing to say to you here's what we've done that did not bless God and his kingdom go out and make your own mistakes we've already made these we'll save you from those but when you do everything right you go as a team you learn the language and you learn the culture and you, you, you are bold in your witness and you break bread listen the number one way Muslims are coming to Jesus is when we share meals with them in their homes and they share meals with us in our homes. And Jesus was condemned and criticized over and over and over again for whom he broke bread with him. Go out and be like Jesus. And when you do everything right, you know what's going to happen? Our best friend in Baus often says to us, the only place where Muslims are not coming to Jesus in large numbers are the places where we're not going. Wow. So you're going to go. You're going to go from here to the ends of the earth. You're going to go as smart sheep among the wolves. And you know what you're going to see? Not dozens, not hundreds, but you're going to see thousands and tens of thousands of Hindus and Buddhists and communists and animists and Jews and Muslims 
come to Christ and flood the kingdom of God. And what's going to be the result of that? They're going to lose their jobs when you do everything right. They're going to have their kids taken away from them because they're not fit to be parents because they're followers of Jesus. They're going to be taken to police stations and beaten. They're going to be taken to prisons and tortured. And as the Esthers and the Simon Peters and the Miriams and the Apostle Pauls rise up to lead this movement of God, there's going to be significant numbers of local leaders and the missionaries that took the gospel to them. They are going to die. If you are obedient to do what Jesus has commanded you to do, you will become a carrier of persecution. Why? Because Satan will fight fight you every inch of the way to keep those souls out of the hands and the hearts of Jesus, the Messiah. So what's non-negotiable? Number one, in the Bible, persecution is normal. Let's accept it. Let's believe it. Let's act upon it. Let's get tough. Number two, as long as the church continues to pray for persecution to stop, the only way that God can answer that prayer is to stop people from coming to Christ. We've got to pray different, church. We've got, you know, there's no reason why you don't pray, God, for them, let this cup pass. But for them, as well as for yourself, we must pray, Father, if you need our Iranian pastor in prison in Iran so that his torturers can have access to the kingdom of God, blessed be the name of the Lord. And you've got to understand, the third non-negotiable, when you do everything right, exactly the way that Jesus said to do it and to whom to do it with, there is a crucifixion waiting for you on the way to the road away stone. This is the nature of the war. This is the fight that we're in. I'm going to ask if our musicians would come as quickly as they can and, uh, uh, and bless us again with uh, whatever song they're, they're going to sing. And I'm hoping that as they sing, and perhaps you sing with them, that you make this a time of reflection and that we, we get ready to join the battle. We get ready to do the tough stuff. We get ready to embrace these non-negotiables, and we know that this is a spiritual war that we are in, but you and I have the opportunity to change the eternal destination of, of entire nations around the world. Stand with me if you would. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for, well, Lord, I, I hurt when I go long because I know how people process things when, when my words run into each other. But Father, don't cheat people here from embracing the truth of your kingdom just because uh, I looked at the wrong line of the clock up there and made a silly mistake. Help them to shoulder their cross. Help them to see that suffering is nor normal and Lord I don't ask that they run away from it and I don't ask that they run toward it I, it's, it's, just, it's just normal and Father I just pray 
that they will find peace in their soul to pray that thousands upon thousands of men and women and families and boys and girls will not only have access to Jesus but come to Christ and find salvation knowing, knowing in their culture, in their setting, in their government, in their politics what's the cross they're going to have to bear. And oftentimes it's more than ours. But Father, Help us to embrace the cross on the way to our resurrection. In Jesus' name.